Hello, and welcome to this podcast from Arctic Dialogue 2014, a collaboration of the University of Nordland, the High North Center, and the Arctic Institute. We are speaking with attendees and speakers about the work, the Arctic Dialogue Conference, and the conference's theme of Arctic resources. Thanks for joining us. I'm Mark Jacobson. Today we're talking with Michael Byers, a professor at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, where he holds the Canada Research Chair in Global Politics and International Law. His work focuses on the international law and politics of the Arctic. Dr. Byers has been a fellow of Jesus College, Oxford University, and a professor of law at Duke University. He has also taught as a visiting professor at the universities of Cape Town, Tel Aviv, and Novosibirsk. Dr. Bias is the author of seven books, including International Law and the Arctic, recently published by Cambridge University Press. Michael, thanks for joining us today. It's very good to be here. Thank you. Can I ask you to start by telling us about your current research as it relates to the Arctic and your plans for the near-term future? Uh, yes, my current research on the Arctic concerns the extended continental shelves of the central Arctic Ocean. And as many listeners will know, the issue of extended continental shelves concerns the seabed more than 200 nautical miles from shore. And under the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea, coastal states can demonstrate the existence of of sovereign rights beyond 200 nautical miles if they can show scientifically uh, that there is a a natural prolongation uh, of the continental shelf uh, from closer uh, inshore. And in the central Arctic Ocean, Canada, Denmark, and Russia are all preparing to submit uh, scientific data to a a special uh, UN commission on the limits of the continental shelf. And uh, this view is uh, very topical at the moment because Canada, uh, at uh, the very last uh, second, uh, decided to withhold the Arctic portion of its submission uh, in December uh, 2013, with the Canadian Prime Minister instructing the scientists to collect more data in the hope that they could extend Canada's submission uh, to include the, the geographic North Pole. I, I don't actually support the Canadian Prime Minister's uh, decision, but it, it highlights uh, the, the topicality of this issue and why expert uh, scientific uh, legal and uh, political advice is, is needed on this uh, right now, and not just in Canada, but obviously also uh, in Denmark and Russia. Yes, it will certainly be interesting to follow how these possible overlapping claims will be solved. Uh, In this regard, why do you think that Russia, Denmark and Canada are so interested in including the North Pole into their sovereign territory? The North Pole is located in the middle of a large and hostile ocean. The North Pole itself is located in 4,000 meters of water. It is covered with shifting sea ice. It is in total darkness for several months each winter and subject, obviously, to uh, extreme weather. So there isn't much 
of uh, value at the North Pole itself. Apart from the uh, symbolic importance that some people attach to the location, and certainly in Canada, children are taught at a young age uh, that uh, Santa Claus, uh, Father Christmas, uh, lives at, at the North Pole. And I am struck by how many people in Canada think that uh, there is land at the North Pole instead of ocean uh, because uh, they were conditioned from a, a young age to think that it, it was possible uh, to actually live there. And I think this, this symbolic attachment, uh, even a, an emotional attachment uh, to the, the idea of the North Pole is sometimes uh, misused by politicians to, uh, to seek domestic political favor uh, from voters. And uh, Arctic politics is an important part of domestic politics, not just in Canada, but also in countries like Denmark and Russia. Think, uh, for instance, of the fact that uh, the Danish government uh, disputes a tiny island between Greenland and Ellesmere Island uh, with Canada, uh, going so far as to uh, uh, sometimes send uh, soldiers there. That, I, I suspect, is because uh, Arctic sovereignty resonates uh, with some people in Denmark, uh, resonates enough that politicians uh, seek to make use of that emotion. What do you think would be an ideal future for the Arctic? What does it look like, and what role could your research play in this regard? Well, the most important step towards a, an ideal future for the Arctic would be to uh, stop uh, the the very rapid changes caused by climate change. Climate change is the single largest factor in the Arctic. Um, the Arctic is is more uh, advanced in terms of uh, the uh, climate change crisis uh, than probably anywhere else on Earth. And so uh, my ideal Arctic uh, would uh, be an Arctic in which climate change had been stabilized by uh, industrial countries dramatically reducing their uh, greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, and having done that, we could then talk about uh, what other components would make up a, a, an ideal future for the Arctic. Mm. Uh, but without talking about climate change, uh, we, we really don't get very far. Um, my work at the moment is not focused on climate change, but focused on trying to maintain uh, some political and legal stability in the region, including by helping to define clear and accepted boundaries between the jurisdictions of different Arctic countries. Uh, I think that cooperation is important, uh, both in, in terms of, of the region itself, but also um, as we, we seek to develop cooperation further on the global level to deal with the really big issues like climate change. You may already have touched upon it, but in terms of Arctic policy and science issues, what, in your opinion, should people discuss that they aren't necessarily discussing at the moment? Well, I've already mentioned climate change, which again, I, I think is, is the, the biggest issue uh, in the Arctic and the biggest issue worldwide. And we need to recognize that uh, uh, within the, the crisis of climate change, there are some small opportunities, um, for instance, for 
uh, increased access to resources uh, for uh, new shipping routes. Uh, we should not miss the opportunities, but we cannot seize the opportunities and, and ignore the, the larger uh, crisis. Uh, so climate change, uh, uh, first and foremost, uh, should be part of, of every discussion. Uh, and a second issue which I, I think is important for, for people to recognize is that the Arctic uh, was a front line uh, during the Cold War between the, the Soviet Union and, and NATO countries, and uh, especially in light of, of tensions uh, at the moment uh, over uh, Ukraine, it's important to, to recognize that, that over the course of the last 25 years, the NATO countries and Russia have managed to uh, transform the Arctic into a, a sphere of, of cooperation. There was a remarkable uh, WikiLeaks cable from the U.S. ambassador to Russia uh, sent uh, by him uh, back to the State Department in Washington saying that uh, uh, cooperating with Russia in the Arctic was an excellent way to strengthen the moderates in the Kremlin. And so for the Obama administration, the Arctic has been uh, an important part of the, the effort to reset uh, the relationship between the United States and, and Russia. And, and so when we discuss uh, the Arctic uh, uh, and the, the issues that are specific to the Arctic, we must not lose sight of the fact that the Arctic is centrally located in global issues, global issues of international peace and security, and global environmental issues uh, such as climate change. Do you think that this widely acknowledged sphere of uh, cooperation in the Arctic developed throughout the last 25 years could potentially be challenged by the current critical situation in Ukraine? Could it, despite its location outside the Arctic region, lead to harder rhetoric and even to conflict between the countries in the Arctic? I don't believe that conflict uh, will start in the Arctic. In fact, I, I think all of the Arctic countries realize that it is very much in their interest to avoid significant militarization in the Arctic because the Arctic is such an incredibly expensive, difficult region in which to operate. The, the cost of increasing uh, military capacity in the Arctic to return to a, a Cold War type situation in the Arctic would cost each of the Arctic countries many tens of billions of dollars. Um, and, and when I um, you know, travel to, to countries like Russia and, and hear people like Vladimir Putin speak, I hear a recognition of this. Obviously, uh, along Russia's southern and uh, uh, western frontiers, there are tensions. But with regards to the Arctic, the Russian president uh, seems to, to recognize that he cannot afford uh, a possibility of conflict uh, in the north Indeed, to the contrary, he needs to have good relations uh, with Western companies, first and foremost, because Russia needs Western capital and Western technology to develop its Arctic oil and gas. So this brings me back to a, an earlier point. The Arctic is actually uh, the very best place uh, to engage uh, Russia in cooperation. Uh, our interests 
align very closely in the Arctic. We want to cooperate uh, because we want to to take advantage of the opportunities of better access to resources, of new shipping routes. At the same time, uh, we, we want to, to address the environmental uh, challenges, both regionally and globally. Um, the Arctic is actually, in my view, a, a laboratory for international cooperation. I'm very worried about what's happening in Ukraine, uh, but uh, I hope that cooler heads will prevail and that the cooperative dynamic in the Arctic will help to bring uh, the different countries uh, to a, a safer uh, and uh, more peaceful place. When talking about cooperation and dialogue, what do you see as the value of events like Arctic Dialogue? Why do you take the time, spend the money, or use the energy to come up to Bode? Well, if you believe in international cooperation, as delivering real benefits uh, in terms of, of uh, increased opportunity for sustainable development, in terms of, of reducing military tensions, then it is necessary that um, officials and uh, uh, experts from the different Arctic countries talk with each other, uh, develop positive uh, relations with each other, uh, share their information, uh, share their perspectives. And I regard uh, the conference as an excellent opportunity uh, to do that. And let me say as well, um, it is important that the conference is uh, taking place in Norway because Norway has been a leader in terms of international cooperation. Uh, I would point, uh, for instance, to the, uh, the remarkably uh, important uh, maritime boundary agreement uh, concluded between Norway and Russia in the Barents Sea. Uh, just three years ago. Those two countries, uh, Russia, a, a nuclear-armed superpower, and uh, little Norway, with a, a population of just five million, were able to settle the Arctic's largest sovereignty dispute by dividing the disputed sector almost exactly in half. And that created a very positive dynamic for other Arctic countries. So. Norway has been a leader, and therefore it is particularly appropriate that this conference is being organized, hosted in Norway. The theme of this year's Arctic Dialogue is resources. What comes to mind when you think of the Arctic's resources and the development of these resources? Resources uh, are obviously present in the Arctic. Um, the Arctic is an enormous region. And, uh, and so it is logical that uh, there are all kinds of resources there. People tend to focus on hydrocarbons, on oil and gas, and certainly in some portions of the Arctic where there is uh, no sea ice, oil and gas is already a reality. Uh, for instance, uh, uh, along the, the northern coast of Norway uh, and into the, the Russian side of the Barents Sea, But I don't get particularly excited about Arctic oil and gas in a larger sense because in most of the Arctic, um, exploring and exploiting oil and gas is extremely expensive just because of the, the distances, because of the weather conditions, because of the relative lack of, of infrastructure. Uh, I would encourage people to, to look at other resources. Also, there are uh, increased opportunities uh, for fishing 
and with that the need for a cooperative uh, fisheries management. Uh, there are opportunities for alternative energy sources. Canada, for instance, in its eastern Arctic region, has some of the largest tides in the entire world, incredible opportunities for wind power uh, as well. Um, and last but, but not least, we, we need to recognize that the, the Arctic is also a, a site of greatly increasing tourism. Anyone who has been to uh, Reykjavik uh, recently will realize that uh, Iceland has seized on its identity as an Arctic country to create a tourism industry that is now a very large component of its uh, GDP, of its gross domestic product. Um, and in northern Canada, we are seeing the development of, of eco-tourism, of uh, small ice-strengthened cruise ships taking people with an interest in nature to some of the most wild and pristine places on earth and generating hundreds of millions of dollars in economic development. So it's not just about drilling for oil and gas. It's about thinking of resources in a more holistic sense and approaching it all as a, a balanced package focused on, on developing uh, those traditional resources in ways that protect uh, the newer resources uh, like ecotourism. Well, Michael, thank you very much for taking the time to share your perspectives on the Arctic with us today. I look very much forward to seeing you at the coming Arctic Dialogue Conference. Thank you. It's been a very great pleasure. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us for this podcast. Follow along with this series on iTunes or via our websites arcticdialogue.com and thearcticinstitute.org. The music you heard at the beginning and at the end comes from Herbert Zeferin and can be found at ccmixture.org.